friends. Welcome to another episode of This is Harbor Network. I'm Casey Smith, and today I'm excited to share with you a conversation that Ronnie Martin had with a great friend and one of the founders of Harbor Network, Mike Cosper. Mike is a Kentucky-based writer and podcaster primarily focused on exploring issues of worship, culture, and spiritual formation. He currently serves as a senior director of podcasts at Christianity Today. Together, Mike and Ronnie talk about the aftermath of Mike's latest project, a podcast you may have heard of called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. They also talk about some lessons learned along the way and how we as individuals and the church can move forward together toward renewal. It's a great conversation, so stay with us. I think a lot of us who care about you and who know you and who have gotten a sense of the toll that creating this podcast has probably taken on you. And again, without maybe you from the beginning, which I'm, I think it's safe to say, realized how big this was going to become. I think the question that I'd like to start out with is just really simply, how are you doing <laughs> and how do you feel? Yeah. You know, it, it definitely took on a much larger life than any of us anticipated. We knew there'd be an audience. We didn't know it would be as large as it was. And I didn't anticipate, I anticipated like the emotional weight because of the stories we're telling, you know, this idea that you're sitting with people reliving some of the worst moments of their lives. Like that was all really, really clear to me. I think what wasn't clear to me in advance was the emotional weight of kind of the audience's expectations. Because so many people who were listening were saying, you know, we see ourselves in this story. We hear our stories in this story. And so um, so you just feel a sense of stewardship about that, that in one sense is good, but in another sense becomes this big heavy weight. So, yeah, so when this finished, we finished, it was like 2.30 in the morning on December 4th. I remember the date because it's my wedding anniversary. And I had sworn to Sarah that we would get the episode done by our anniversary. And so 2.30 in the morning, it's done. The episode released. You know, I just listened back through the last like 20 minutes of the show and and just wept because of the heartbreak over it, you know. And so I, you know, we're about to start rolling out our bonus episodes. We're going to have bonus episodes throughout February. And I'm I'm super encouraged about those. And there's some constructive stuff that's going to be really kind of looking at where do we go from here. But yeah, I would say like there's definitely a, a broken heartedness to all of it. Even while I, I definitely feel like this has allowed people to hear and experience the mercy of God who have been deeply wounded by the church in the past. That's deeply gratifying to have been a part of something like that. It's interesting that you said that there was sort of an added, an unanticipated weight that came with probably what you couldn't see when you first started, coupled with what you could see. And so there was like a compounded probably sense of weight. And with that came probably was emotional. I'm sure it was spiritual, maybe even took a toll on you physically. I mean, what were some of those tolls that you feel like that took on you? Yeah. I mean, people say things like, oh man, things are rough right now. Like I'm working 80, 90 hour work weeks or whatever. And I think most of the time people make comments like that, they're probably lying. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. like they're, yeah. they're exaggerating. Like, yeah, you're you're probably working 50, 60 hours. Like it's it's tough, but I don't know if that you're actually putting 90 in. 
But I mean, there were definitely, you know, October, November, it, it was this season of like, wake up at 530 in the morning, you know, see the kids and Sarah, Sarah's teaching full time. And so see them off to school. And then I'm at my desk until they're home. And then we eat dinner together. And then I'm back to work until one or two in the morning. And it's, you know, weekdays, weekends, you know, maybe a day off here and there. I mean, the physical toll was like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. It was crazy. And it was, you know, at the same time, it was this kind of thrilling creative experience. I mean, I love this kind of storytelling. I love this kind of, I love working in audio. I mean, it, it brought together a lot of things that I really, really love and care about. And so it was it was fun in a, in a real sense. But yeah, man, I mean, it was, there's a reason podcasts like This American Life and Radio Lab have teams of, eight, 10, 12 people right. working yeah. on a show. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not one, just one jerk sitting at his desk. For, <laughs> <you know. laughs> the soloist is what you were. Exactly. Exactly. Well, man, that's, a, um, it's funny you say that because I'm thinking about it in terms of sort of the way an artist has to recoup from a project. I mean, recoup physically and emotionally, you know, when you finish recording an album, for example, and you walk away from it and you have this sense of like, it's too late to do anything now. Everything that could be done to it is completed. Love it or hate it, it's going to go out into the world. Already I have 25 things in my head that I wish I could change or that I just wasn't happy with. But at some point, you have to say it is finished and you have to walk away from it. So what was that like in terms of that December 4th clicking send and being like, that's it. Whatever it is, it is. And now it is set in stone and there's no altering that. Yeah, I think the beauty of the situation I was in was my executive producer is a guy named Eric Petrick, who's the chief creative officer for CT. Brilliant guy, like wonderful creative partner, background in the film industry, and you know, been, been a storyteller his whole sort of professional career. And so Eric, like one of the biggest things Eric provided for this project, and really this is what like record producers do all the time. I, I know this kind of from the other side. Like a good producer, one of the most important things they do is tell you when it's done. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and or tell you when it's not done. And so that his voice in in all of this saying, you know, there was one week in particular, and I, I probably shouldn't say which one it was, but there was one week in particular where. I mean, it was agonizing getting to the like, do we have it? Do we have what we what we need? Is it coherent? Does it tell the full story? But yeah, I mean, you think about the scope of the story and the questions that are being asked and the issues and having somebody to help you go, let's narrow, let's focus, let's do this. And then on the flip side, you know, when it came to those last two episodes, like a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, two and a half hours, are you kidding me? And that was that was kind of in Eric's hands as well, saying... No, like these need to be Marvel Cinematic Universe long enough to pull all the threads together. And I will say like the first cut of each of them was about three and a half hours. So, <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, so quite a bit of editing. So we did a lot of editing nonetheless. But Yeah. You know, with all the years that you spent pastoring, you know, at a local church, how similar was this to that in the sense that you were faced with opinions and bad press and just social media mayhem that you have no control over that is just going to come your way as it wants, as it does. 
being a pastor all those years, how similar slash different was it to that? And how did that um, affect how you were able to receive it or approach it? I think in some ways, in some ways it's even more, I mean, at least in terms of my own experience with pastoring, I was more teed up for like sort of extremes and vitriol with this than I was as a pastor. Because rarely was there somebody, even somebody who was angry with me in the church, like rarely were they speaking from a place where they were just totally disconnected from the community in some way. Where with this kind of stuff, it's like sort of big platform, big bullseye, people feel free to say all kinds of things, including just totally out of line stuff about family members and and stuff like that. I mean, it was crazy. I will say like, I think the one parallel for sure was when Sojourn went through the period of time when uh, the local independent newspaper was coming after us over LGBT issues. And we had stuff getting posted on social media and, you know, protesters calling artists that were, you know, being booked at our venue and stuff like that, where there was just this kind of onslaught. It was very similar to that. So maybe in some ways that prepared me for it. But again, it was one of the benefits at CT is like there are people on our team like Kate Shellnut and Daniel Silliman who like, that's a Tuesday for them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and as much as Mark was beloved by people and created sort of a, made it difficult for some to hear negative things about him. I mean, Daniel Silliman in particular, I mean, he was the one who did the reporting about Ravi Zacharias and revealed all of that. And Ravi is one of the most beloved figures of the last three decades in evangelicalism. So having them to kind of speak in and even just tell you like, yeah, dude, just log off. Like, don't listen for a while, you know, focus on telling the truth as you see it, as you understand it. Because the danger is you do want to react or the danger is you do want to sort of subtweet through the storytelling and all of that. And so it took some discipline to resist that. And it also took just going, oh, I, you know, more than ever as well, I'm just convinced Twitter's just not real. It's just not the real world. It's like 3% of the population is on Twitter and you just can't take it that seriously anymore. Yeah, I think that's a good word. One of the things that struck me when I did see you respond on Twitter, which, you know, I was, you didn't really respond too much, you know, given how much dialogue there was, you know, around every pod that got released. But I thought it was interesting that over and over again, you said, give it a minute, get to the end, you know, maybe suspend, you know, your very broad and generalized opinion until you can get to the end and you can get more of a sense of what it is that I'm trying to communicate. And like any piece of art, right? You're not there to say everything. You're there to narrow in on on one specific thing or maybe a variety of specific things, but it certainly can't tell the whole story. So in that sense, what do you have to say to people that are at the back end of this thing, still wanting to say, but you didn't cover this, but you didn't cover that? Yeah. I mean, right now I'm aware of two film documentaries that are being talked about being made or in production or, you know, coming down the pike. I mean, the reality is like church of 15,000 people existed for what, 18 years. No one person can tell every single story of that church and of those experiences. And I was focused on trying to tell the story of the people who lived at the heart of it and saw it up close. You know, if you think about the kind of concentric circles of a community the tighter in on the circle you were, the more important it was for me to hear from you. 
because I wanted to understand like what makes this thing tick and then what happens to those people when it falls apart. Obviously, that leaves a lot of room in a lot of other places. And nonetheless, there were a lot of people who lived inside of that world who didn't want to talk to us. People who would have had more positive things to say about Mark, for instance. You know, they were there, but at the same time, yet, like, they don't want to go on the record about that kind of stuff. And there's just, there's not much you can do with, you know, without those people speaking for themselves. I also think, like, one of the things that was so interesting to me, there were certain critiques of Mars Hill and comments made about, like, gender kind of related stuff that were just simply untrue, you know? Or like the counseling ministries. Like we heard things about like people were saying stuff online about like, well, this is what they would tell people and this is the policy and this was, you know, you had to promise this or that or the other. And you kind of get into it and it's like, yeah, there were probably some elders doing exactly what these people are saying. But there were 75 elders. And like, you know, if you ended up for marriage counseling with a guy like Phil and Jen Smith or like Mike and Trisha Wilkerson, uh, you probably got great care and great counsel and with certain things, you probably got referred to professional care, depending on what you came in with and that kind of thing. And then I won't name names, but I'm aware of easily three or four other elders that if you ended up with one of them, you probably experienced spiritual abuse and trauma because they were unqualified, they were not sober-minded, and they were authoritarian. And so that's one of the things that became more and more clear, and we really tried to communicate that in the podcast as we went was Marcel really wasn't one church. It was multiple churches, and not just in the sense that it was multiple locations, but there was not a coherent pastoral philosophy that ran nose to tail through the thing um, because it was just so big and unwieldy. Yeah. Was there a level of frustration that came with that at any point during the creation of the podcast made you just want to throw up your hands and say, I've had enough. I don't know that I can finish this. This is becoming... (laughs) This is taking over my life. This is all-encompassing. This is not what I signed up for. No, it never got to that extreme for me. To me, there was definitely a, throughout the process, yeah, I just had this sense of like, you just got to show up for work and tell the truth, you know? Tell the truth as you see it. Advocate for the people. Advocate in the sense of try to tell the stories of the people who were hurt and broken by this, you know? And you can't take the critics too seriously. Because I think oftentimes, you know, again, like when you're spending all of this time talking to people who are really at the heart of it, and man, I mean, we talked off the record to dozens who weren't on the show giving us a sense of things. It gave you a really clear sense of conviction about like, I hear what you're saying and all of this, but I think I've done my due diligence to know not to let this stuff kind of hit me too hard. So... And I think, just to clarify what I mean by that, too, like, throughout the process, it was like our strongest critiques were, like, parallel universes from each other, right? Because on the one hand, you had really, it wasn't just, like, kind of the conservative reformed people. A lot of them were eager to listen, eager to learn, and had some amazing people speaking into it from even kind of from behind the scenes. But it was like the John MacArthur crowd from day one was very eager to say, well, John MacArthur was critical of Driscoll, you know, John MacArthur's critiques of Driscoll were part of what, you know, brought him down and et cetera, et cetera. And we we acknowledged that for sure, because I do think it played a part in some of the public persona kind of stuff. But the idea that MacArthur's critiques 
had anything to do with Driscoll's downfall is just silly. Because inside the organization, these people were loyalists to Mark far more than they were to Driscoll. It was his kind of dishonesty and his misrepresentation of things about MacArthur that stirred some trouble. And then I would say on the flip side of it, it was like you had the same kind of dynamics from progressives who wanted to make certain external critics of Mark the hero of the story. And it was the same kind of thing. Like, it was like, well, they had some influence. You know, they they definitely, there were, there was an audience that was listening to those critics. And some of those critics who did like parody things and stuff like that, like, those were very funny. But you got to understand, like, the leadership around Mark that ultimately came to a point where they held him accountable finally, they weren't influenced by that. They thought that stuff was funny. And the stuff that Mark was being critiqued for by them oftentimes was not the stuff that he was brought to bear in terms of his sort of ultimate accountability. It was it was just these more basic kind of character issues of honesty and plagiarism and and character, stuff that would be brought to bear on a leader in any environment, hopefully. Would you say, looking back, if you could sort of make a distinction between all the different critiques, would you would you say that you felt that the majority of people were very supportive and fair? Or was it really just from either side, it was more of a rush of hard critique kind of coming your way? How would you say you, you could like divide that up looking back? Yeah, I... You know, it's it's like they say about restaurants. When somebody has a great experience at the restaurant, they might tell one person. And if they have a bad experience, they'll tell 12. Again, like I just had helpful people in my life kind of speaking up and saying, hey, just remember this. Remember these dynamics are happening. And so I would say like the social media noise and criticism really got to me for the first, like it was under my skin for probably the first couple of months, you know. And then there were a couple of things that were said online. And like I mentioned before, like it related to family and I don't want to get into the details of it, but it was a pivot point for me where I was kind of able to go, oh, I think these people are actually unhealthy Mm. and that that's where a lot of this sort of energy is coming from. And I don't need to entertain it. There are critics I want to hear from, but these are critics that I have relationships with or that are inside Mars Hill and are telling me. Like, hey, these are issues in the story you need to pay attention to and yeah. you know, give voice to. And so that was a big pivot point for me that helped a ton. Well, it kind of brings us up to, you know, we talk about renewal, you know. So that's one of our values at Harbor. I, you, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you were part of the team that uh, introduced that as one of our values. And so when we talk about renewal-driven anything, right, ministry, mission, it makes me think of just how important the elements of family, community, close friends, people you can trust, you know, what kind of renewing process they had, you know, in your life, you know, during the recording of this. Yeah, it was, I mean, that was huge. I mean, the friends, like our relationships with like friends that are not part of CT that are not impressed by what we did. I mean, they they enjoyed it. They encouraged me, you know, all that kind of stuff. But they didn't have anything to gain from trying to attach themselves to me or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, that meant the world to me. And I would say, too, I mean, it sparked a lot of conversations with some members of our church and some former members of our church who've, like, 
either gone on to other places mm-hmm. or who have left the church and struggled with faith and stuff like that in ways that were really humbling for me. And I think that's something I'm still processing, right? Like I talk about it on the podcast and a little bit about our experience at Sojourn and my experience as a guy who very easily could have been one of those guys at Mars Hill, you know, 20 mm-hmm. years old, idealistic, passionate, thinks you have it all figured out. And then 20 years later, you look back and you go, oh man, like we did some damage to some people because mm. of just being naive and being dogmatic and having some weird ideas about authority. And yeah, you know, it's wild. You know, it causes me to think of a couple of conversations that I had just with pastors that were just rabid fans and listeners. You know, they were the guys that were, you know, complaining, you know, on social when the episode didn't drop the minute you said it was supposed to drop, right? Those guys. What was interesting was it seemed like the only kind of conversation that I had was this idea that is this pod having a negative effect in that it's creating challenges for stronger, more decisive leaders. So I had a conversation with one of my pastor friends in particular, who is a strong leader. He's a decisive leader, would be the furthest thing from an abusive leader, but he just, he leads very strongly. He would be a high Enneagram eight type, right? And so he was just very nervous. He was very, he enjoyed the podcast, but he said, I'm just so afraid of, you know, if I have somebody that's younger on my staff and they, they don't appreciate a decision I made, or they disagree with the direction that the church is taking, are they now going to be able to, because of the podcast, be able to level some things at me that aren't true, but they now have a category for mm-hmm. And this was, you know, this would be a a revolving conversation where, from my perspective, I would say, you know, the truth typically comes out in a lot of these situations. And if somebody's not an abusive leader and, you know, they get things leveled at them, it seems like there's a good chance with enough research and a plurality of elders that it will come out that this is, in fact, not the case. But my argument to them was that the good that a podcast like this did was to help surface and give a category and give more awareness to just an incredible pool of abusive leaders that have, you know, just slipped under the radar for years and years in the church. So I guess my question for you is, how do we answer the first part of my question in terms of in creating a difficult scenario now for strong leaders? Yeah, I think it's a, I think this is a super important question. It's being asked in a lot of places right now. And I'm glad it is. I will say the the like spoiler alert is that I don't think I have a clear, clean answer to the question in a sense, because I'm not sure there is one, but I think there shouldn't necessarily be one, right? Mm. So here's what I mean by that. I think first of all, whenever I hear pastors or leaders or even like friends of mine that are in the marketplace, Whenever I hear them talk about, well, you know, I'm just a strong personality. I'm just type A. I'm a take the hill kind of guy. I always just want to respond like, yeah, but if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're not exempted from goodness, kindness, gentleness, you know, speaking in love, all that kind of stuff. And so I feel like that caution sometimes gets lost in the conversation. And it's like you can Enneagram it very quickly. It's like, well, I'm an eighth. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't give you an excuse to be a jack. Yeah. So the other thing I think a lot about in all of this is 
there have been a number of articles written recently. There's kind of this ongoing kind of discussion about, well, what do we what do we do about false accusation? Like, what do we do about this environment that's being created where people can cry abuse over every little thing? What I observe in a lot of that conversation is people going, okay, what's the technique whereby we protect ourselves from this? Like, how do we make sure nothing bad happens as people who've been victimized or people who have suffered, you know, begin to raise their voices? How do we make sure nothing bad happens to us? Because I'm sure it wasn't me. I think there's a weird spirit involved in that. Number one, I think it's a weird spirit to go, well, I know it wasn't me, so I have to make sure that I'm, you know, hedged and protected from any of that. That's not the kind of humility modeled in the New Testament and in the church. The second thing is that need for a technique, right? Like, what's the policy? Like, what's the process? That runs against the way God works with leaders all through the Bible. You know, go to the book of Exodus. Moses is being criticized constantly in the book of Exodus. And his response to that criticism is not to like, he doesn't have a plan for like how he cuts these guys down or like makes sure their voices aren't heard or makes sure that they're sifted or whatever. His response is to go, oh Lord, defend me, you know, mm-hmm. oftentimes literally falling to his knees right in front of them and and asking God to speak up. And, you know, sometimes God like the earth would open and swallow them, you know, <laughs> these critics right? when the accusations are false. And so I think the other piece of it is like, do we believe genuinely in the judgment of God and the presence of God and the work of God, the spirit of God in our churches so that when these things come up, we can soberly say, number one, with humility, I'm going to take this seriously enough to just go, okay, I need to hear. Number two, like I can trust myself first and foremost to God who is judge, who is righteous, who can discern fact from fiction and all of this. And then number three, I'm going to entrust myself to the church because the church is not just a collection of people who can be manipulated by this or that. The church is the church because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need to create prayerful communities of leadership where in prayer we can respond either in repentance or in to have a response where the the leaders do gather around and say, hey, I don't think this is what you think it is. Yeah. And, you know, I have a friend right now who's gone through I have two friends right now who've been going through this at their churches, and they've responded with a lot of effort to kind of accommodate the people who who have raised questions, and they've done third-party investigations. I mean, they've done everything that needs to be done. And at, at the end of the day, I think what's frustrating is we're so used to having a technique whereby we can go, A, B, C, we've solved a problem, whether it's growing our churches, raising money, you know, developing leaders, like whatever it is. This is one of those dynamics where at the end of the day, this is probably, like, there are relationships that are going to sever. And you can't control for that. Yeah. But what makes us think that that's what's supposed to happen? Right. And what makes us think that it would be better if the voices of the abused were muted a little more in order to make things a little more comfortable for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, Well, I appreciate that. I resonate with that. I agree with that. And I think what it guards leaders against is deflection mm-hmm. um, because we have a tendency to want to deflect. We have that tendency that you were really just pointing to, which says, what about me? What about me? And then it really does take away, takes the emphasis off the people that are actually hurting the people that have actually been wounded and damaged. And, you know, I think we see 
that tendency in us. You know, Kevin DeYoung just dropped an article on the Gospel Coalition, which again, there were some things in that article I think you and I could probably agree with until he gets to the end, which says, hey, we also need to, you know, hit pause. We need to give leaders a chance to tell their stories. Again, it's hard to express nuances in any kind of medium, right? Especially even in written medium. But I think what it did for a lot of people that really reacted strongly to his article was once again to say, again, this feels like another opportunity for leadership to not take responsibility for those that have been harmed. And it's another way to try to deflect instead of like what you just really, I think, wisely pointed out that said, hey, as leaders, we have to leave our innocence in the hands of the Lord and let him work that out so that we don't create a system that allows us to hide or fall under the radar, but there's something established that gives people that have been hurt and abused and damaged a place to speak their voice and be listened to and be believed. And I think that's where we all want to be leaning and heading and creating new spaces for, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say a a couple thoughts on that. Like one is I feel a real lack of sympathy for this idea that like, hey, we need to give leaders a chance to give their perspective. Because I'm like, what's the last 40 years of evangelical leadership culture been other than a platform for leaders to give their perspective, to tell their stories, to give their points of view. The scales are so tipped in favor of leaders that a guy like Bill Hybels could have been a serial, you know, serially sexually harassed women in his office for 30-something years and gotten away with it. Same with Ravi Zacharias. I mean, the that whole thing. And I think, to me, one of the most telling moments and frustrating moments in that Kevin DeYoung article is when he kind of even calls into question the use of the word abuse. Because right. he, he says, you know, you know, historically, typically, you know, the word abuse is referred to as like the, you know, the abuse of a child is kind of the specific reference he makes. And to me, that's the tell. Because I'm like, you know, not to be harsh, like Kevin's a very smart guy, I'm sure. But I'm like, dude, I don't think you understand power. I don't think you mm. understand power differential. Mm. Because abuse is ultimately about a power differential. Yes. And it's like the whole conversation that continues to come up over and over again about, like, did David rape Bathsheba? Yeah. Where people are like, well, I mean, that's that word is not used in the text. It's like, yeah, but look at the power differential. Yeah. Like, maybe it wasn't violent, but can you in any way, like, where's the implied consent, right? That's right. Again, that's how power works. That's why so many women in Hollywood slept with Harvey Weinstein. Consent wasn't about consent. It was about power. It was about what happens if I resist in these kinds of situations. And so to me, to even sort of call into question the word abuse is problematic because I'm like, I don't think you understand how the gap between the pastor's authority as the guy in the pulpit who holds the Bible and the person in the pew or the person, the, the leaders around them who don't hold that place of authority how significant that is and how when that central pastoral lead figure brings that force to bear against someone in a way that disrupts their community, their relationships, their faith, there's not a word for it other than abuse. You could find synonyms, but abuse is is absolutely appropriate in a circumstance like that. Yeah. I appreciate that a lot. I, I wonder too, you know, thinking about Mark and just thinking about 
you mentioned the last 40 years of evangelicalism and it's a system and a structure has been created for leaders like Hybels, for leaders like Ravi Zachariah to exist in a way that their accountability exists only to continue to forward their platforms. And there's a lot of different things they can do, just like you can do in the world in a more corporate setting to hide that because success and fame and money create those structures to where it's easier to um, find people to help you hide. Is there any way back from that? When we look at the next 40 years, when we look at the evangelicalism that our kids are stepping into or stepping out of now because they can't bear to step into it, but is there any way back? What do our kids have to look forward to? What can be changed? What can be Mm -hmm. altered? Yeah, I think we have to go back to... I think there are a couple of different things. Like, so evangelicalism as a movement exists in part because of its emphasis on evangelism. So it's core to our understanding as a tribe that we should be growing in number. I totally buy that theory. (laughs) Like, I'm on board for that. Um, Let's see more Christians. Let's see more churches. Like, let's grow. But I think there's something... There's something that's been absorbed implicitly, and obviously we talked about this a lot on the podcast, but there's this implicit acceptance that growth is health, that growth Mm -hmm. is blessing, that growth is flourishing in ways that have just kind of blinded us to like other metrics for what makes for a, a good, healthy community of people following Jesus, right? And I think even our language is is important around that kind of stuff because when we throw out a word like discipleship, like, well, what what do we even mean by that? Like, what is functional mm. discipleship is a big question. You know, are we satisfied with a, a shallow enough kind of discipleship where people attend, they participate on a certain level, they give at a certain level, they serve at a certain level, but maybe they aren't seeing like deep transformation of their character, deep transformation of their witness in ways that really sort of deeply impact the community. And one of the things that, you know, that you hear all the time in this kind of conversation is people saying like, well, you know, there are these churches and they get inward focused and all they care about is discipleship, 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 and then they stop growing. And I'm, you know, I hear that and I say, okay, is number one, where is that happening? Mm. Right? Like, is that a straw man or is that real? Because I have a hard time imagining. I mean, I can think of like the godly saints in my life, a friend of mine who's 90 years old, who's like a deeply, profoundly godly man who everywhere he goes, people want to understand the kind of faith that, you know, he lives with. It's like Rich is, you know, saying that like the most important thing we have in our ministries is our transformed and transforming presence. Yeah. So I think because the metrics of growth, of baptisms, of money, of buildings, because those are so simple and easy to kind of keep an eye on, the deeper metrics of character, compassion, or even like metrics about kind of the functions of the church where it's like, you know, how many hospital visits did we make as a community mm. this year? How many funerals? Like, did we pack out a, a visitation at a funeral home for one of our members because we wanted to show up at a crisis moment in their life? I think it's those, somebody the other day referred to them as like middle metrics, which in one sense annoys me because I'm like, can we just get rid of the word metrics and just talk about what it means to be the church? But on the other hand, I'm like, okay, I'll take that. But let's take those middle metrics and recognize that like this ordinary, unglamorous stuff of community where like, oh crap, you got COVID? Like, let me bring you a meal or shoot you a DoorDash coupon or whatever. 
counting that stuff of like showing up when it counts yeah. is so critical to what it truly means to be the church. And I mean, just to bounce back to the Mars Hill podcast for a second, I think it's why that story where that Nate told about, you know, this experience of, you know, being very sick in London and feeling like Mark didn't care is so significant because those are the moments when it, those are the moments when it counts. That's when it matters. And that's when character really shows up. It's, it's not these big moments from the stage. It's not Easter Sunday where you can create a whole lot of hype and momentum and, yeah. you know, create a big emotional wave of response. It's like, man, did, did you show up when their dad died? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that was huge for me last year when my dad passed away. Like, the people who showed up in that season in those weeks and called me and sent flowers, like, you realize, like, oh, my gosh, that's so important. I'm never taking that for granted in anybody's life again. So. No, that's really good. I think, yeah, you're, de- you're describing the hidden moments of the church body. You know, you're describing the things that don't get posted on Twitter, that aren't Instagrammed. And it's the daily practice of living out our love for Jesus. And it's, you know, again, leaning into, stepping into a life of renewal that just says, I care more about others than I care about myself. And at the end of the day, if I have to decrease so that Jesus increases through my service to others, I mean, that is what being the church is all about. And nobody's ever going to see it, you know, but the Lord sees it. And we believe that and we trust him for that. But that's a completely different way of living. It's a completely different way of the church becoming when you, you know, compared to the church that became through, you know, really the 70s, 80s, 90s, when we saw these explosions of growth and, you know, sort of the corporatization of, you know, sort of the modern evangelical church. So I think you make such a great point. And I think it's up to us as individuals in community to say, this is what I want to do. This is how the Lord has been speaking to me through a podcast like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill so that I can just get back to matters of first importance because I can see myself slipping into this or sliding into this or being tempted by these things. Lord, save me, right? So it almost brings us back to our knees. And again, not as a way that creates distance between us and Mark. We're all Mark and Mark is all of us. It's the sense of saying, you know, beating on our chest and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, at the end of the day, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I mean, I would challenge our, you know, I still think of myself as a Harbor Network guy, so I, I'm going to say our network. I st- I we would- <laughs> still think of you as that, so absolutely. I, I would just challenge, too, like, for our pastors and our network, you know, do you have the same passion and conviction about sitting at a hospital bedside as you do about getting up to preach on a Sunday morning. Yeah. And if you don't, I mean, it's stupid when people say, if you don't quit, like that's dumb. But if you don't, ask yourself why not? And then seek the Lord about why not? Because it, it comes back to one of these things, and, and Jared Wilson, I thought was so helpful about this on the podcast as well. And I wish we could just air the whole interview that he and I had because his story is so helpful. You have to start calling into question. Like, like we just make so many excuses for ourselves about mm. like, oh, that's not my gift, right? Like, well, we have the prophets and the priests and the kings. And like, right. so I'm I'm really the prophet guy, which means I really belong on the stage. And like, we've got priests and they're the ones that are going to show up in the hospitals and care for people and all of that. It's this weird division of labor thing mm-hmm. where you hear it and then you go, well, well, I don't know, like, 
Paul doesn't seem to be making those distinctions and making those differences around some of your elders are going to be prophets and and never have to like, you know, they don't do weddings anymore because they're too important. Right. Um, and then, of course, like the obviously like the central figure is Jesus himself. Like that was one guy who kind of functioned in all those roles and we're supposed to follow him and all of that. Now, again, like that doesn't mean I'm not saying churches shouldn't have ministries that focus and, sure. and emphasize yeah. in different ways. But what happens, and this happened at Mars, but and this happens at churches of all sizes, is once you start creating that division of labor, that's where some of those conversations take place. And they took place at Sojourn, where you go, well, the priests need to do the priest things, but we, you need to be careful about letting the priests tell you how to run the church. Mm. Leave that to the kings, because they know how to build things and grow them and all of that. Instead of having this sense of like, you know, the guys in your church that are really good at that pastoral care— their voices are just as important at the table as the guys who are really good at systems or the guys who are really good at using their gifts to preach. So that's good. I think that's good wisdom. I, you know, we have this language that we all use now, right? Which is just, well, this is my lane. I'm running in my lane. Stay in your lane. And it's almost like we need to delane our ministries. Again, like you said, it doesn't mean that some people aren't just supremely gifted in particular areas. You know, it's funny because it, it brings up a story that kind of falls in line with what you just told about your dad. My dad passed in 2007, and it was abrupt. It happened overnight, and nobody was expecting it. And he wasn't sick, and it just, he had a heart aneurysm. And uh, the guy that was my pastor in the moment was on vacation, and he took one of those, you know, four-week-a-year vacations where he was not to be bothered, which was good, understandable, healthy. But it was such an interesting thing that for a guy that was probably, if you want to talk about prophet, priest, and king, this guy was the, he was the poster prophet, right? The preacher guy. And I remember the day after he died, I remember getting a call from him. He was all the way across the country. And he talked to me for about three minutes. And what I always tell people is that I can't remember one word of one sermon he ever preached, and he was a great preacher, but I remember that call. Mm. I remember that call, and I remember everything that he said on that call, and I remember the tears that came down that just came flowing when he hung up, and I remember thinking of how much that meant to me in that moment to be pastored by him. His preaching was important, but what stuck with me was just that level of love and compassion and care, you know? So you make a really great point in terms of what does it look like for us to guard ourselves by not just pulling back, but actually reaching in. We guard mm -hmm. ourselves by stepping into those spaces that are hidden, that do follow the way and the nature of Jesus, right? And I would just add to that too, like I think one of the things that hinders us from stepping into that is that our our gravity is towards the grandiose. And so we think, oh, okay, I need to be better at pastoral care. I'm gonna do 100 hospital visits this year. Like, I'm gonna do all the, and it's like, dude, your, your example is perfect. You know what people want? Pick up the phone, give them mm -hmm. a call, be on the phone for, it might be five minutes, it might be an hour. It's probably yeah. not gonna be an hour. It's probably gonna be five minutes. Hey, how can I pray for you? Let me pray for you right now. Do you need anything? Let me see what I can help, what the ch church can help with. It doesn't take much, but it's that presence and it's that open door where they feel loved, they feel seen in that moment. And then hopefully there's community around them, there's relationships around them that are even more of a presence in those moments. 
But the idea that we can just sort of relegate that stuff to somewhere else, exempt ourselves because we're the important guy on Sunday on the platform is just, it's dark. It's twisted stuff. It is. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I think a lot of people are going to appreciate that wisdom. I think you're really valued in our network. But I want to finish with this question. Was it worth it for you? Was it worth <laughs> uh, the emotional toll? Do you feel like it was worth it when you look back? Yeah, I mean, 100%. There's no question to me. Because of how often we heard from people saying, you're telling my story, you don't realize it, but you're telling my story. Mm. And again, I think one of the things that motivated me to tell the Mars Hill story in the first place was you read the headlines, you know, you read the story in the New York Times or in Christianity Today or wherever else about the fall of a leader, the fall of a Christian leader and the pastor. And it's so hard to translate what's happening on the ground Mm. into those stories, you know? Yeah. And I had just enough experience with it myself in terms of some things that happened at our church, but also in terms of having relationships with a lot of these people at Mars Hill where I had a vision for what that actually looked like and felt like. And so being able to draw that out was so important to me. It's the element of all this that makes me not surprised that it blew up, Mm. Uh, certainly not to the degree that it did. but And then, you know, a number of the folks who were part of the, the Mars Hill story, who were interviewed and whatnot, the number of them who reached out and, and kind of said that kind of a thank you, like, you know, you didn't do this perfectly. We would have done mm-hmm. this or that differently, you know, which is totally valid and fair and, and fine. But they felt heard. They felt seen. Like, that was worth it. Totally worth it. Yeah. And people said, like, would you do it again? And I'm like, if I had some time to rest up, I would do it again. but i mean to be clear like i mean the next project is not another like fallen pastor story i mean we really we're really trying to look at something different i don't i don't want to be that guy but in terms of like the impact it had on the the hurting like totally i would do it again yeah and i think we're all really grateful for that and i definitely speaking on behalf of the network i think we're, we're all really grateful for that i think we look forward to praying for you whatever your future projects are partnering with you in in any way that we can and just feeling grateful that you had the courage. It was a, it took a step of courage to dive into something this deep and that caused this much commotion. And also, ultimately, we would say did so much good. So mm. thanks, brother. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Mike, for your time and for the courage to tell this story. It's a sobering and thoughtful reminder that none of us are beyond the need of God's humbling grace and mercy and that our primary calling as God's people is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, most often through the mundane and unseen tasks and moments of everyday life. While this type of life and ministry isn't easily measured, it is nonetheless the means the Lord uses to make us more like Jesus, and they are the path to the blessed and happy life with God and others. As I have reflected on this podcast and the story of Mars Hill, I couldn't help but evaluate my own life and ministry and how often I tend to measure personal, familial, and ministry success by standards that are often not presented in God's Word. Listening to this episode, as well as the other stories and conversations on this podcast, have reminded me time and time again that there is another way. And I can think of no better template than the one the Apostle Paul lays out in Romans chapter 12 
starting in verse 9, where he says, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. And do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. My prayer is that our churches would be filled by people that are marked by Paul's exhortation in this passage. And may these verses bring hope and encouragement as you navigate the open waters of life and ministry. All right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing to our show and giving us a rating and review in iTunes. If you have feedback, please email us at podcast at harbornetwork.com. We would love to hear from you. This is Harbor Network is a production of Owens Productions. It's produced by me and Mark Owens. It's hosted by Ronnie Martin and me. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And our music is by Mark Wallach and Aiden Blackbird. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.